Hey everybody, Magnus here. You know, I want to say it was a month ago, month and a half, something like that, it was announced that Smallville Season 11 was going to be ending with the storyline continuity, and that basically all of this was going to be coming to an end very soon. And as I write this, the final issue of Smallville has just been released. And this is pretty much it for the Smallville universe. It's, I guess it's very unlikely that it's ever going to be revisited again in any capacity whatsoever. You know, whether it's a comic book or a novel or, or whatever else. I mean, this is the end of it. And... I gotta be honest, that actually sort of pisses me off because it feels like maybe I'm just the the one in the room who didn't understand what the DC Digital First line was all about, but it just feels like the Digital First uh, imprint is basically DC's dumping ground for a lot of short-run glorified miniseries, really, is what it comes down to. And it doesn't feel like they're really interested in exploiting Digital First as, uh, I don't know, an alternative venue for ongoing uh, comics that fall outside the mainstream continuity. And it just pisses me off, you know? I felt like there was a market to be tapped with uh, a Superman uh, comic book that really didn't have ties to any specific continuity, right? And that's one of the things that made the adventures of Superman from the digital first line kind of interesting to me, you know, because you could have stories that didn't have to tie in with this v new 52 version of Superman or, or that, I don't know, latest crossover series that's going on. You could just have Superman stories where you can assume a lot of the basics and then just enjoy the story or not from there. The shit ended. Apart from that, there was also Legends of the Dark Knight, which you could kind of make the same sort of argument about. It was just continuity agnostic Batman stories that are just fun and easy to read and you didn't you didn't need to worry about, you know, what ramifications this might have on continuity for this or that, and it was just a lot of fun. And then that series came to an end. And now it's Smallville's turn. And Dan DiDio, Jim Lee, all the usual suspects have been pretty outspoken about just how successful Smallville has been for them as a comic book. And how the majority of um, new, uh, uh, new activations, or sorry, uh, uh, the majority of Smallville purchases from comicology were actually coming from new activations, basically people who had never picked up a comic book before in their lives, were following Smallville from the TV show over into the comic because they wanted to keep the story going, you know? And it's like, on the one hand, you want to go out on, a, on this sort of artistic high note, and I get that. But on the other hand, it just feels like there are so many other stories that you can tell in the Smallville universe. And at the same time, I mean, the Smallville universe is 
at least in season 11, it's basically an alternative DC universe. If you're just dissatisfied with what's happening with the new 52, the Smallville season 11 universe is not exactly like the pre-Flashpoint universe, but it's pretty fucking good, you know, and now it's gone, and it just kind of irritates me, you know, I mean, because I'm sure, you know, I see that, uh, you know, DC has kept, you know, a, a Batman Beyond going, because if there's one thing we don't have enough of right now, it's Batman comics, they've got Batman Beyond going, Batman 66 seems like it's still a, a pretty big seller, there's some sort of Bat Manga thing that's happening, it's just... It's just fucking aggravating, you know? And looking around at the other things that they've got, there's some sort of uh, Flash comic book that you know is going to end up being a limited series that they just fucking forgot to tell us about. Same thing with Sensation Comics featuring Wonder Woman. It's another miniseries that they're not going to tell us is a miniseries. And all these other things. And it just feels like I'm once again alienated from and disenfranchised from the DC universe, you know, and I mean this, well, maybe not the DC universe, I guess I mean that more from the angle of DC as a comic book publisher, this is just one less thing I have in common with them now, and I gotta tell you, it's a pretty, it's already a long list, and it's growing by the day, it feels like, you know, and I realize that there's really no percentage in it to sit around and, you know, groan and complain about how things would be if you were running the show because you're not running the show. You will never be the one running the show. So what difference does it make if, you know, the world isn't run the way that you think it should be, or DC Comics isn't doing business the way that you think they should be? And that's fine. I get that. But, you know, at the same time, Smallville Season 11 was one of the very few comics that I followed on a regular basis, and, or at least new comics anyway, and... This is now, like I say, one less thing that I've got in common with DC Comics. And it just pains me, you know? And I'm not happy about that. I thought that the idea of continuing the Smallville story in comics had a ton of potential to it. I mean, I get it. The TV show had satisfied their mandate. They'd uh, taken this awkward, goofy farm kid and over the course of ten seasons transformed him into the greatest superhero that the world would ever know. And that was really their, their dramatic mandate. That's what they set out to do. That's what they accomplished. And it's time for them to close up shop. I get that. But, this, but the character himself still has so many other stories. And it felt like a lot of things were being left on the table. And here comes Smallville Season 11 to start telling some of those stories. And it felt like that's where things were going to go. And... Anyway, maybe I'll just save this, you know, the rest of that little rant for a very future episode of uh, my Magnus talks about Smallville retrospective, but that's just the way that I feel about it right now. And, you know, there are, there is, there are so many amazing and cool things about DC Comics that I just really cherish. It just feels like none of them are being published anymore, and it hurts. So... Anyway, so, oddly enough, though, I think this is actually going to be a pretty decent little lead-in for my, uh, for the show that you're about to listen to, my little conversation with PQ Ribber. I think this is actually a pretty decent little lead-in, so I guess there's something to be said for thematic unity there, so. Anyway. 
now enjoy the rest of the episode. Hey, your attention, please! This is a piece of art. His Kryptonian biological makeup is enhanced by Earth's yellow sun. Dr. Doom wears body to conceal his own mangled form. Worst episode ever. Why? Who shot first? Who gives a shit? It's what's called super nerd nitpicking over something that's not really that important. Trennis Magnus Punches Reality, presented by Two True Freaks. I'm your host, Magnus, and I usually talk about comics, movies, and TV shows, but today, uh, today, I am not, uh, basically, I'm just going to let the subject go wherever it wants to go, and not try to impose any kind of structure on it, because today, it's a very special day, I've got with me a very uh, special guest, this is a, a podcaster that I am extremely fond of, uh, a guy who's output i think he actually does something he releases something new every single freaking day so you know there's there's that but uh in any case i'd just like to welcome to the first time well sort of first time to this show uh mr pq river of the overnight scape underground welcome sir how are you uh, i'm swell and uh thanks for all the flattery uh, we do a show but it's like uh, i i aim for daily but uh, i do four or five shows a week at seems to work out well all i know is that I, I i just look at your output and i and my hat is off you sir are a professional because this your show sounds great and i really i really appreciate the diversity of material that you talk about it's uh it's it's, uh, it's just really fun to listen to and for those of you who don't know uh, his show uh, basically everything that he does can be found at onsug.com that's o-n-s-u-g.com I'm sure you've probably heard his promos on my show, but just in case, that's where you can find it. O-N-S-U... Wow, I just bit the shit out of my tongue. O-N-S-U-G.com. And, uh, you know, get, uh, give it a listen, because it's hilarious and it's always insightful. So, anyway, welcome. Yeah. Oh, yeah, we did this. Uh, basically, it's, it's just all the weird stuff that I find that I'm allowed to... Uh, I, I can get the rights to uh, share, is how that works. And well, it's the topics you're talking about. I mean, uh, not so, not as much comics as it could be sometimes, but TV, movies, pop culture, and uh, I make weird music that gives some people a headache and other people like. Well, I enjoy it just because it sounds different. I mean, all due respect to uh, you know other people out there, but I do. I really don't think we need another podcast out there that has the John Williams Superman theme in it. <laughs> It's oh, I, I'm amazed, you know, what we have on the network I'm on, we just we wouldn't even use the John Williams theme because what can happen and it necessarily won't. But one day, whoever holds that copyright can decide you violated it. And all the work you put into that show is gone because you're not going to be allowed to post it anywhere. 
Yeah, and that's actually something that I've always been sort of like a little bit worried about. And, you know, I don't want to get too much into behind the scenes stuff, especially things that aren't really my business to talk about. But, oh, yeah. Know. Well, we each have a network that, you know, we don't I, I don't set the policy for the overnight scape underground. And I've already had a little uh, a behind the scenes conversation with the folks at Two True Freaks, basically about the use of copyrighted music. And I mean, it's it's a fair call. I mean, there are a lot of people who put up shows, they use it and it'll be there forever. But I know people who put a lot of work into shows and because they were talking over somebody's copyrighted music and they didn't save the original file with just them talking if they ever want to do that show they have to do the whole thing over without the music right and um you know that's actually i'm kind of a pack rat and i've got a um, multi-terabyte external hard drive that i save all of my stuff onto and so if worse ever truly came to worst I could cobble this stuff back together, and it might sound a little funky, but it would be there. And oh, um, you're lucky. I, I, I try not to. I used to save all my source material, but I've done almost a thousand podcasts since 2010. Jeez. And who could even find anything? It's just this uh, one day I just had a little funeral and deleted it. Um. Well, not to. Yeah, it, geez, wow! If you if you cho- if you chosen any other word, I don't even think I would have brought this up. But I just got a, a notice here saying uh, that uh, Joan Rivers just passed away. So oh. um, speaking of funerals, but um, wow, let's uh, let, let's bring it down early, huh? <laughs> she was young and cute at one time, you know. She was, she was, and uh, I, I think I was a little boy at the time. What about 1964? But she was. Yeah, she was. And she was always a little bit of a firecracker, too. So anyway, thoughts and prayers with uh, Joan Rivers' family. And uh, <laughs> so. Oh, yeah. And plus, you know, if they are actually listening, they will hopefully have recovered uh, from this by then. Well, let's hope so. Although, let's just be realistic. I seriously doubt uh, Melissa Rivers listens to this show. <laughs> I, uh, probably not. Probably not even any of her peeps. Yeah, well... One never knows, though. So, now uh, I'm kind of curious. What comics have you been reading lately, if any? Ah, uh, I am reading Golden Age and a couple of Silver Age comics. Uh, there's nothing that is coming out presently that has grabbed my attention enough. I mean, I it's, it's, I can get you know with with the realm of obtaining and the internet, you can find anything. Mm-hmm. And you don't even have to buy it. But I just, I'd rather read an issue of Star Spangled Comics from 1942. Right. Any day of the week. Well, um, you know, I, I, I tend to agree with you. I don't want to come down too hard on the modern comic book industry, at least Marvel. But it, it kind of fe- feels like there was a point when, and a lot of people have said this, and definitely they've said it more eloquently than I can, so I don't want to you know, dwell upon this, but it's just, it kind of felt like there was a vintage of fan that they were determined to show the door. Now, whether or not that's true, I don't know, but it's just, that's how it felt. Well, it needed to happen. The, the whole thing got, the, the fans... As much as they added to the comics, once they started dictating, and uh, people have forgotten that 
comics are comic books. They're supposed to have a sense of humor. If the continuity doesn't fit exactly, the answer is not, oh, we're going to fix it and retcon this and do... The answer is, it's a comic book. Well, and I get that. And it kind of feels like there there came a... And I don't know when it happened. We know that it happened no later than the 80s. But there came, there came a point when this industry started taking itself maybe a little too seriously that every single frickin' continuity thing needed to be, uh, if not perfect, it needed to be perfected. If it wasn't already, you know, uh, exactly what it needed to be, if it didn't line up exactly right. And, uh, you know... Mm-hmm. I, to me, it's it, this is a fiction entertainment. The fans that turned this into... It almost has to work better than a reality does. I, it just took all the fun, the wonder, the uh, a new artist and writer take over a book that should be able to change everything. But no, it has to fit this, or we have to crush the universe again and start all over. Yeah. Well, it's just, and it's kind of weird because, you know, comics are all about developing and then maintaining a status quo. And so constantly resetting and slightly modifying that status quo, I don't think that has the benefit of attracting new readers. I think that, I, I think Superman's a good example of this, where his fan base now is so freaking fragmented that you have Superman fans that like Man of Steel versus the ones that like Secret Origin versus the ones that like Earth One versus the ones oh, that like dear. Birthright. And, you know, these are people that... When you think about it, they really should kind of be comrades in arms, except they're not. They're taking up arms against one another because that guy's a piece of shit, you know? And I almost don't mind that, uh, that that's almost moving away from a continuity into like each creator is doing their thing with this character that has this certain history. And that's fine. uh, I would almost rather that I don't like every Superman book, but there's one that I really like. Which one? No, I've... I've, Oh, yeah, I see. You're speaking hypothetically. Since the new 52, uh, I read everything at the beginning. That first Grant Morrison story arc, just like... It was just more of the same... uh, And I don't think I've picked up another Superman book since. I, I, I have all the Golden Age ones, and that right recently, what I'm reading is the Old World's Finest, which each has a Superman story and a Batman story, Golden Age, and some other fun stuff. And uh, that, that the last couple of months, I've been slowly going through those. Well, there was a point when I had a, I guess, a, a sort of craving for Golden Age Superboy stories from Adventure Comics, and. I'm gonna look. I'm gonna be honest with you. Some of those stories are just—they're about as weird as that description might make them sound. But some of them are all that and a bag of chips. I mean, this stuff is—it to me, Superman needs to uh, whatever else he is, he he has to be one thing, and that is myth. And whatever else you want to say about some of those weird, goofy Superboy stories, dude, they are freaking myth. Oh yeah, they—they they are big. They are myth. I, I grew up, I mean, my golden era is the Silver Age, I mean, the bottled city of Candor and Brainiac and all the different red kryptonite. I love red kryptonite. I don't care what anybody says, that red kryptonite was just awesome. 
Um, one of the things that I was reading, um, this was, oh, geez, we're like two, three years ago. I want to say it was, um, it was the Batman Chronicles. It was this uh, uh, trade paperback compilation of, I should say, probably the first 12 years of the of the Bob Kane, Bill Finger, Detective Comics Batman. I mean, we're talking like Detective Comics number 27 to like, I don't know, like maybe 40 or 41 around there. You know what I'm talking about? Oh, yeah. Solid golden age. Okay. I know the era. Yeah. And you know what? I realize that we're talking about the bat hyphen man now. Hmm. And there's a very strong argument. This is not the same character that's being published today. I realize, I don't know if I, as I totally agree with it, but I at least see the argument. But I got to tell you, you know, people can say they can piss all over Bob Kane and whatever he did or didn't do. And I'm really not too interested in getting off on that. Except to say that, you know, that first year of uh, Batman before Robin was introduced, I put that about uh, ahead of just about everything. I mean, to me, there's a there's a darkness there and there's a grit to it that I don't. Oh, yeah, it had a great feel, and, and Bill Finger was a great writer. I agree, and you know the um, I guess I, I just I look back on that and I and I remember thinking that you know I don't know if something like that can be repeated, but that's the kind of Batman that I'm really interested in reading more about. I don't know about you. Oh, I prefer, again, uh, by and large, golden and silver age and bronze, you know, bronze was my uh, adolescence, so I have a soft spot even for the bad bronze age stuff, but that's about as far as I go. I mean, I liked the gritty new superheroes, and I ran a comic book store in the 90s, so I was in the belly of the beast of... It was like Valiant and all that. And I was there when Magic the Gathering took over the comic industry. <laughs> <laughs> and that's, it's funny that a card game would take it, but it did. It did. It did. It, 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 we, I was working for Store Trade at the time, mm -hmm. and I was getting boxes of cards and putting them in notebooks. And soon I was making more money than the store was on the side selling single cards. You're kidding. I didn't know it was that big. Oh, it was it, it got so big. I, I was in Santa Fe at the time mm -hmm. and it, it was like kids just it, there was almost a wall we hit where kids stopped reading and started playing Magic the Gathering. Mm. Well, I, keep in mind, I'm that era and we're talking about I guess this is like the early to mid 90s. Right. Um, that era. That was when I was, I guess, coming into full bloom as a as a, a collector. And you, what you need to understand is that, you know, you're coming at this from, from the angle of somebody that has kind of done this their whole lives, uh, his whole life well into adulthood. And so you'd seen kind of these passages and movements and things come and go inside of the industry. And I think you maybe had your, your wits about you in a way that I just didn't back then. I mean, I was a kid. And so I thought, holy shit, you know, this, this is what the comic industry is, where you have these just crazy, crazy prices going on back issues and stuff and all of these foil covers and all this other bullshit. But the thing that nobody talks about that happened, like, I remember this happening all the time back in the 90s, and it seems like we've all kind of collectively forgotten this, is that you would have these incredible sidewalk sales of, uh, of comics. These stores are making so freaking much money that they're open not every night, but they would have these sort of mega sales uh, on weekends and stuff where they're open like almost midnight on a Saturday night. And they have these just incredible prices on back issues where you could get like 
two, three, four back issues for like 50 cents or something like that. And then, you, oh, yeah. And, and, you know, I remember, you know, I don't re- like we, you see stuff, maybe not that extreme, but you still see that a little bit today. But back then, it wasn't even about making money. It was about clearing out shelf space because they're getting in so freaking much product, they cannot keep their back issues in place. They've got to get more room for the new stuff. And that's where a lot of this stuff was coming from. And you just don't see that as much anymore. And I kind of feel sorry for kids today that they don't they don't really have – of course, I don't know that kids today even read comics, to be perfectly honest with you. But even if they did, I would want them to have an experience like that where it's like going to freaking Disneyland with all these comics and figures and things that are on sale. It was just – it was – that to me was an amazing time to be a comic book fan, if you, in my opinion. What do you Oh, think? yeah, whenever you can get – because when you're a kid, you're just not that selective. I mean, even those gold key comics when I was a kid, I mean, hey, this is great. It's a comic. <laughs> Well, and then, yeah, and what you mentioned actually a minute ago was Valiant. I'll be honest with you. I never had much of a problem with Valiant. I, and there was – and again, like the capitalist in me didn't have much of a problem with Image. The comics fan in me was at times mortally offended by things Image, uh, Image Comics did. But like the capitalist in me very well understood what it was that they were up to. And basically they just wanted their piece of the pie, and I get that. But, you know, honestly – the Valiant stuff, I didn't really read a whole lot of, but I always got the impression – like I don't know why, but anytime I think of Valiant, I think of Barry Windsor Smith art because of how, how many of those covers that he did. And so to me, right. that's what all Valiant characters look like now. So, Oh, they should have been so lucky. The thing was that they had the nice – it was that bait-and-switch thing that comics love to do. It's that great Barry Windsor Smith cover, mm-hmm. and then you open it up, and it's ugh, flat, awful – mediocre nothing artwork yeah bart sears or something like that and uh, nothing against bart sears but oh no he's a uh, it it looked it's a lot of guys you know you just you do the job and he's not bad i mean there there have been terrible artists but uh, that's also subjective some people love don hex some people don't well the thing is though is that by any objective standard you got bart sears which is you know that's fine whatever with a with a Barry Windsor Smith cover, and I'm sorry, to me Barry Windsor Smith is an institution. All right, and uh, I I have never once looked at a Barry Windsor Smith illustration of anything, and thought, man, that really looks like crap. I've thought that about Bart Sears on more than one occasion. Again, nothing against the man. I'm sure he's a nice guy, but his art I always thought could be a little bit hit and miss. Whereas, you know, anyway, so but then you got BWS and the guy's just a he, to me he's a giant in in the industry and he and especially at that point in the 90s I don't know that he really got the the full props that he might have considering that everybody was on the sort of Eric Larson bandwagon or Jim Lee or whoever else and yep. and to me there's there's something that's just so classic and well he's just not prolific apparently he can't pages out like nobody's business he works slow well and be that as it may you know maybe he he is the consummate cover artist but like i say i just that was really the thing that ultimately kept me out of valiant was that you know i would look at this amazing um uh, cover that i how could you walk away from something like this and then you open it up the comic you open it up and flip through it and you know what the art it may be um I don't know, uh, competent enough. Uh, it may get the job done. It's just... Unengaging. Exactly that. And, you know, 
that is not the thing that I, based on the the strength and the power of that cover image, this is not what what I and I and I kind of feel like you know there were there was a a breed of fan, not that I remember this because this was way before my time, but there was a breed of fan in the seventies that would studiously avoid all things Superman, and not even because they don't even like Superman all that much, but you would have this gorgeous Neil Adams cover. On the inside, look, I was just going to say that Neil Adams covers and Jack Kirby covers in the 70s almost meant that they weren't going to be on the inside. Pretty much. And I can kind of, well, it was certain characters. I mean, I think you, you, you maybe had better odds if it was Batman, but otherwise it's, to me, flip a coin, dude. I have no idea what the end of that's going to be. And, you know, and, it, and it's kind of funny to me that, you know, there was a point, this was only a few years ago, where it was actually sort of the, it was that same thing, but in reverse, where I would see a, a uh, an Alex Ross cover mm-hmm. and think, oh, Jesus, no, thanks, but no thanks. I mean, I am so done with Alex Ross, it's not even... Oh, I was, uh, I actually, I was very lucky. I was still running a comic book shop in, what, 1994, right. and uh, had a table at the Dallas Fantasy Fair and had a lovely girlfriend at the time. So all the artists, when they had free time, were hanging out at my table. And uh, Alex Ross used to be, when I met him, he was this goofy, shy, almost zero self-esteem schlub. He'd just done Marvels, and he just won his first award at that Dallas Fantasy Fair. Wow. Uh, then I met him a year, just a year later, and he was, I, I, I wish him well. He was just a completely different human being. It, it all went to his head, and he was suddenly a very confident, professional person who had no time for any nonsense. Well, there was one thing he said that actually really did set me off the deep end. And, I, and let me just preface this by saying I'm one of those people who maybe I'm a little thin-skinned when it comes to certain things. And whenever – I shouldn't say a hero, but somebody whose work I'm at least aware of, even if I'm not a big admirer of, whenever they shoot their mouths off to the press about things that honestly I think maybe need to be kind of kept to themselves, I develop an opinion about that. And oh, in this yeah, case, I do too. And I wish I could – you know, I wish there was an off button for that, but unfortunately I can't turn off my brain, if, if only, you know? Oh, no, you and I have the same – we both have these really, really strong opinions. In certain areas, we agree. In certain areas, I'm pretty sure that we don't. Well, right. And yeah, and actually, I I think that's very true. But in this case, what ended up happening was Alex Ross, he was given an interview with – it wasn't Wizard Magazine, but it wasn't so new as to be Newsarama. It was something. Journal. It could have been. It was something like that. Basically – we were we were basically starting to reach the crest of this late '90s Star Wars Renaissance, late '90s, early 2000s, and the subject of Lucasfilm, Star Wars, George Lucas personally, and you know those sorts of things came up in an interview. And if you look at um, Alex Ross's repertoire, there is a kind of obvious gaping hole in um, his resume. Somebody is as, as prolific as he is, and he can do whatever the hell he wants. He gets to call the shots on basically everything he does. Why hasn't he done any Star Wars work? And he thought, I thought nobody would ever ask me. I am so glad you brought that up. Basically, George Lucas is a big meanie head. And then he went off just to tear George Lucas apart in this interview. And by itself, look, I love a good celebrity feud, right? It, mm-hmm. Nothing about that. But number one, 
he's not really uh, George Lucas really isn't the celebrity feud type of person. Number two, the specific incidents that Alex Ross was talking about, absolute hearsay. There's no way to prove or disprove it. This isn't falsifiable. And then number three, based on the strength of what this one overrated fucking hack is saying, I'm supposed to disown all things George Lucas just because he's got an axe to grind. Okay, and he's, he made it very clear, as, and I don't know if this still stands now, but he said, the day will never come when I do any kind of work for the Star Wars license because ultimately F you George Lucas, right? And I'm sitting here, I'm reading this stuff, I'm like, where the hell did this even come from? And how did this... Yeah, even- something bit him in the ass one morning, who knows? Well, and... And I don't know. I mean, and it's not like George Lucas is um, it, it walks on water in my view. Trust me, I'd never make that claim. But well, just, no, if I met George Lucas, I, I would look him straight in the eye and say, George Lucas, aren't you the guy who made American Graffiti? I think you'd get a kick out of that, actually. Well, um, I, I, I was the wrong age or something for Star Wars. I have some respect for it because almost all my friends, the sun rises and sets over it. I never got much out of it. Well, fair enough, but <clears throat> I think maybe the uh, the minimum that I think we could all maybe agree on here is that it's one thing to say, well, you know, such and such, I just don't think I ever want to work with the guy, whatever, in an interview, you understand, I mean, mm-hmm. among professionals, and then just tearing this guy apart for like six or seven paragraphs or however long it went on. Oh, no, it, that's his, uh, like I say, this, he must have had a bad experience. Well, I don't know, but and I, and you know what? I wasn't there, so I can't even comment on what did or didn't happen between those two. I just thought it was a really yeah. cheap shot. It was really uncalled for, and yeah, there's just you say that I, I, I you answer the question and you don't go into a personal attack on anybody, right? Well, and ever since, and keep in mind. I don't think Alex Ross can put together a comic book page to save his life. I mean, he's no, got- he has no sense of composition. He he works from photos. He he is a craftsman. He is not an artist. He's a craftsman, not a draftsman. That's that's an interesting way to put. Well, yeah, and and that's actually something else. I mean, I, and I think you know the, the public tastes on this guy are actually kind of starting to level off. And we're starting to get a little bit more of a realistic appraisal of him. But I got to tell you, dude, there was a time. It, it wasn't even all that long ago, like five years ago. It was politically incorrect not to like this guy's art. And I was kind of oh, like, he was when I ran the shop, Marvel's had just came out. And at that point, he was like you know, the, the risen new with this. And all of a sudden, everybody painted. And there were some of the worst painted comic books in the history of the world that followed for you. I'm sure there still are. Right, and it just kind of felt like – but you know what? Even if the quality of some of those books wasn't quite what it could have been, there was a competency, at least in terms of layouts and storytelling, that honestly – Well, what Ross, I have to give him I, – I, this just popped into my head. Go for it. I really liked EarthX. As a person who grew up with like the Silver Age Marvel right up to that era, mm-hmm. I – out of everything he's done or had his fingers in, I, I, I give him a pass for having done Earth X. Yeah, I don't know. I never. By the time Earth uh, X came around, or at least by the time I became aware of it, I'd already developed so many. I don't know, just negative. Uh, not uh, not negative opinions because it's not like I know the guy, but I just had kind of, I guess, missed yeah. the train on on. 
when it came to Alex Ross, and then by that point, it really was irreversible. But I think the straw that really broke the camels, and 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 I just just hear me out because as weird as this may sound, it'll make sense in just a moment. It was a poster that he did for the Justice League, mm-hmm. and I want to say it was like, and it was a, uh, and this was actually more of a landscape type of poster than it is uh, the portrait style. So that by itself is just kind of odd, but the. It was right after the time of uh, Kingdom Come, or maybe right as Kingdom Come was in, was ending, this poster came out. And the reason it was so noteworthy is that this was basically what was at the time the modern-day DC universe. This was not the Kingdom Come version of these characters. This was the more classic version of them. And so I was all I heard was that something like that was was coming out like next month or something like that. And I thought, oh, well, okay, well, there's really no way to screw up a poster. This is going to be great. This is going to be end of the world, right? And I looked at the solicits for it, and dude, I couldn't believe it. I mean, this thing was a – it was a hot mess where you know, Superman is uh, basically the one airborne character. The other characters are sort of filling up the, the main part of the poster, and they're just standing around doing absolutely nothing. Superman's coming in for a landing, mm-hmm. and he's on the far right-hand side, and it's just – the perspective, because of the fact that he's coming in for a landing, it makes him look smaller on the poster. And it's just this thing is it's just a mess. And, you know, and it's a completely black background because, God forbid, we have something going on, you know, something else in the uh, in the art there. And this was just the biggest mess that I'd ever seen in a uh, professionally produced poster in my entire life. And so I thought, well, I'm not going to waste my money on that. And so I kind of forgot about it until about two months later. When I went back to my LCS, because uh, I needed to pick up some stuff, and they had a, a, a copy of the poster on the wall, which they were taking down. It had a $50 price tag on it, and some idiot had just bought it. Oh. And I'm thinking, are you are, are you mad? Look, this is crap. How can you, Why would you spend that kind of money on this? I mean, it was you could have gotten it last month for like 12 bucks or whatever it was. Now you're paying 50 for it and for this crap? I'm, what What's up with that? You know, but – by that point, the guy's kind of cult of personality had sort of taken over, and that's the end of it. Oh, you know? yeah. And it's just, like I say, he's done some good stuff, and, and he's influenced some good stuff, but it's, yeah. I think the long haul, the, the, he's had a bad influence. I tend to agree. <clears throat> Although, you know what? Mm-hmm. When I think back on it, one of the very few good things to come out of that latter-day era Justice Society book that he... Well, it wasn't his book, but he ended up kind of inviting himself to the party or something. I never mm-hmm. figured out what happened there. He did some pencils for it. And what I found is that if you can take the paintbrush away from him and just give him a pencil, the work necessarily gets a little bit better because I guess they have a more competent colorist doing the job. But the other thing was... I don't know. Somebody just, I, I guess, gave him a comic, uh, a copy of... You know, how to draw comics the Marvel way. Because, you know, there was a little bit more logic and consistency to these layouts. There was actually not much, but just a little bit of. I don't, and I don't even know what you call it, like visual storytelling, that kind of thing. That oh, yeah. No, it's, it's, it's being able to see and lay out a page. I mean, guys like Mike Sikowski could do it in their sleep. And Jack Kirby, too. I mean, I'm not. Kirby, a, yeah, all those uh, prolific. Silver Age and Golden Age artists. Well, and keep in mind, I mean, I don't like Jack Kirby much more than I do Alex Ross. 
But what I will say is that he had this unshakable mastery of the fundamentals that even if you're not a fan of the line style, and I'm not, you can't argue that you could delete, and I'm, and I'm speaking hypothetically here, but you mm. could delete entire sections of the dialogue from those books and you're maybe not following at like the minutia of the plot but you're getting enough of an understanding of the action who the good guy is who the bad guy is what direction people are moving and all that stuff based on the art that you don't absolutely need as much text as stan lee would sometimes put on the page oh yeah that they were as well kirby was making movies for himself and as fast as he could, I mean, he wouldn't even ink his own stuff because once he got the story out in pencil, he was done and wanted to move forward and not have to go back and do it over. Well, I, I, you know, I've actually read a theory, and damned if I can remember who said it now, but somebody basically tried to give Kurt Swan uh, some advice saying, you know what, if you ink your own work, you would be amazed, number one, at the, at, at the difference in terms of quality which I think is debatable, but also mm-hmm. just your your personal stability, you know? Yeah. And, and, and what he meant by that was, I guess, uh, like those sort of intangibles that no employer is really responsible for, but at the same time, they just kind of need to be aware of, like your personal stability, mm-hmm. your self-esteem, your security in your job, and all these things. If you ink your own work, right. now all of a sudden there's a degree of control and I guess confidence that you can have in yourself that if you're just bashing out pencils all day, you never really get. And keep in mind, I don't know anything about drawing comics, like as far as doing it. Oh, I, I know enough to understand uh, what – you do have a lot more integrity. It's the integrity of your work that stays solid. And I read a lot of Walter Ego magazines, so that's a thing. I mean, there's certain anchor – uh, penciler teams. Once a penciler trusts that anchor, really cool things happen and everything can move along. Right, and honestly, I think that's usually the better the better way to go with things because you know, I, I, if you wanted to put it in like songwriting terms, there are penciler and inkers out there that are sort of Lennon and McCartney that I don't know that you get necessarily from that same type of John Byrne style auteur, right? Where <laughs> You know, Byrne is a good inker. I never take that away from him. But I always thought his pencils looked just a little bit better, a little bit tighter, a little more expressive whenever he had Terry Austin doing the inks. That's just me. Oh, I agree. I mean, at one point, he was just shooting from his pencils. When was that? When was that? that was the 70s? When was that? Uh, 80s. Uh, I think at the, one of his runs of Fantastic Four or something. At one point, he just stopped having an inker. He was inking himself, and then they started shooting from his tight pencils, and it was working fine. Wow. I didn't know that they – I didn't know. I never knew that. That must have been one hell of a pencil job then. Yeah, uh, well, Colan was able to do that too, and in fact, Colan's work that first shown when they were able to reproduce all of the pencil gradations that he would do. Well, I don't know, but to your to your point though, you know, a good inker I think can make or break any comic book, and you know, people can say that, and I realize it's kind of a this is one of those things I'm probably never going to forgive Kevin Smith for introducing into the lexicon, but that whole tracer bullshit. Which I'd never heard anybody say until Chasing Amy. Now everybody feels like they can they get to make that joke, even though it really wasn't funny the first time. But 
there was an issue of um, it was sort of this house. Well, it wasn't a house ad, but it was sort of a house ad that DC had going for a while, mm-hmm. where they gave the same basic pencil uh, penciled page to different inkers and basically said, "Do your thing." And then the idea was that they would lay all these things side by side by side, and you could see just what an inker was bringing to the table. You would mm-hmm. look at the, the pencil sketch to start with, and it was a comic book page. It wasn't just you know some guy posing. There's actual storytelling going on here to give you a better understanding of it. Okay. And um, you know different inkers had completely different takes on even the same pencils. You know the same images, and they had so totally diametrically opposite ways of viewing this stuff. And it, it it's now and then if you hang around in this in this hobby long enough you'll. I'm convinced that you're going to learn something that'll just punch you right in the balls. And that to me, I didn't, I always thought that there were only so many different ways that you could go with any type of ink job and that one really is about as good as another. And then two things, (laughs) well, yeah. And then two things happened. Number one, I saw that page. And then number two, I saw, uh, Dan Jurgens inked by uh, Klaus Jansen. And, yeah, it's about as horrible as you'd think, too. So. Oh, yeah. I did Klaus Jansen, certain people he works with and the rest, oh, and, and his solo stuff, it's like bad, fake Frank Miller. And that's about, isn't, isn't that when they first teamed up? Wasn't that on Daredevil, him and Miller, or yep. was... Yeah. Oh, it, I'm sorry, go ahead. Now, when he, uh, when Miller first was doing Daredevil, there was some nondescript inker, and then they put Jansen on it, and that's when things started to pop. Well, it's a matter of opinion, I suppose. I don't know. Well, no, as far as fanboy, I uh, mean, that book in its day was just like it's, uh, the hotcakes of hotcakes. <laughs> well, all I can tell you is that uh, Klaus Jansen is one of those artists. He's... He's pretty much on my on my make or break list, right? Where if I see his name on a book, mm-hmm. him and Bill Sienkiewicz, if I see either of their names on a book, I'm out. Okay, I don't want to mess with it. I mean, I've read enough of their stuff over the years to know this isn't my thing. It will never be my thing. I don't want to have anything to do with it. I'm done. I'm out. And I think everybody has like four or five artists on their on their oh yeah they're just i don't want to see it i don't want to know it yes it's great everybody loves it i can't look at it take it away yeah and he's definitely one of mine and um you know so whenever and i and i find that you know klaus jansen apparently i'm the only one in the room that doesn't like his stuff but there you have it and so yeah but i was i but he, he his inking at times especially way back was fine um as a penciler yeah like i say it's like just bad fake Frank Miller and real Frank Miller is overrated. You know what? What I've basically what I found is I can tolerate Frank Miller's art in Daredevil. It's fine, yeah. The only time I really like his art, and I forget what you call this style, it's like chiaroscuro, I think is how you pronounce yeah, it. Yeah, chiaroscuro, yeah. Yeah. Um, basically, the only time I I really like it, and I'm using even that. Even then, it's kind of in quotes. But the only time I really like it is whenever he draws Sin City. Otherwise, in The Dark Knight Returns, I'm looking right at you. I've never liked the art on that book. I don't like Frank Miller's art in general, but I really don't like the art on that book. I've never liked the coloring. I've never liked the inking. I think the writing's overrated. And 
when I look at Frank Miller's, I guess, repertoire, he's a decent enough writer. Keep him the, as far the hell away from the art as possible unless it's Sin City and then let him go for it. Otherwise, I don't – I mean I'm not really big on Frank Miller either. And I'm not saying that because it's so it, – it, finally, we're starting to get a little bit more of an even appraisal of him now. But there mm-hmm. was a point when that was kind of – even that was a little bit of a shocking opinion. <gasps> you don't like Frank Miller? Oh, no. When he uh, the, the only thing that I really, looking back, kind of liked, and it was mostly just because it, was, it looked so different than anything that came before it, mm. was Ronan. Really? Oh, before Ronan, there were no Baxter books. There were no books that had that kind of artwork on any level or that kind of coloring. With it, they were comic books. And then one day, Ronan came out. In context, it was just such a departure. Right. And it was like Marvels, and you could almost make a parallel. I mean, that's what this seems to all be tying up into: <laughs> is the Alex Russ Frank Miller overrated parallel. Well, I've well, and keep in mind, we're not, uh, you know, we're Batman Year One wasn't drawn by Frank Miller, but I always thought that, you know, David Mazzucchelli and Frank Miller, they really did have a. I don't know if I'd go so far as to call it a collaboration because I don't know if that's actually how it worked, but there was some kind of lightning in a bottle where Mazzucchelli's art was the exact thing that that story needed when mm-hmm. it needed it. And I don't know if I'd go so far as to make that same claim about Daredevil Born Again, basically the same team, but Batman Year One, I honestly cannot imagine that story having been drawn by anybody else other than Master Kelly. That's one of those times when I really do think it was a masterful pairing of the right writer with the right artist. And it's kind of funny because I don't, I'm not a big devotee of that story either because, again, it's, it's Frank Miller. But at the same time, I can't argue that those two didn't do extremely well as far as complimenting each other on that story, if that makes sense. Yeah, it does, and I, I see your point, and that, that works for me. All right, well, we're kind of coming to the limit here. So um, now, uh, one, I, we sort of already talked about this already, but I just just so as a, just so everyone can have a, a reminder, where is it that they can find you? Oh, they can find me at the Overnight Scape Underground, uh, onsug.com. And I do an almost daily show called The Quake Reversal Satellite. And I do a weekly show that anybody can participate in. We toss a topic out. You have a week to send in your contribution. And I slap it together every Monday called The Overnight Scape Central. You know, I've actually got two or three submissions um, that just ended up rotting on my drive because I just kept forgetting to send them over. So... But yeah, I actually feel really bad about it. They were like little two, three-minute segments, and I, I don't know. Maybe you could have gotten some mileage out of them, but I will oh, say... Oh, no, you ought to send us something, especially if I have a topic out there that you got something to say about. By all means, you should join the fun. Absolutely. Don't mind if I do. Well, either way, though, thank you very much for joining me this week. It was a lot of fun, and uh, God, this hour just went by like just like that. It just came and went. I'm, I'm surprised, so we got to have you back on here at some point. Any time. This was fun, and thanks for having me. Uh, happy, uh, happy that you could join in. So, I think that's basically it for uh, for us this week. So, bye, everybody. I will see you next week. We are out. There you go. If you like 
strange pop culture. If you like obscure stuff that you wish you'd have heard of years ago and you don't know what it is, if you like just that kind of stuff, old radio, um, obscure, unmarketable pop culture, uh, strange chiptune music, um, all sorts of things like that can be found on the Quake Reversal Satellite on Overnightscape Underground at O-N-S-U-G dot com. It's an amazing show at an amazing place full of uh, strange and unmarketable internet transmissions. Hours and hours and days and just O-N-S-U-G dot com. Take a look around and I bet you you'll find something. It started in November 2010, when one guy decided it was time to show the denizens of the internet that there was more to Superman's adventures from the 70s and early 80s than Alan Moore and Kryptonite Nevermore. Now, three and a half years later, that mission continues. This is Superman in the Bronze Age. My name is Charlie Niemeyer, and every week I shine the spotlight on this long-overlooked era on Superman in the Bronze Age. Join in the fun at www.supermaninthebronzeage.com and www.supermanpodcastnetwork.com. Star Trek comic books, mythology, video games, toys, Star Wars, just about any geeky topic you can think of could be covered on the Hammer Podcast, presented by Two True Freaks. Come join me, Gene Hendricks for whatever my disjointed mental processes can come up with. And be careful, or you might just learn something before we're done. The Hammer Podcast is available monthly, both on its own iTunes feed and at twotruefreaks.com.
Hello, my name is Robert Willing, and I love comics. But my all-time favorite comics are the alternate universe comics. Now, that's not an obscure comic company that's known only to local comic stores. What I'm talking about are comics that gives us a different spin on characters we know and love. From your Elseworlds at DC, to your what-ifs at Marvel. Why am I doing it? Well, there are two reasons. First of all, I love the unlimited possibilities that the multiverse has brought us, and I wanted to share that love with everyone. I will be talking about all sorts of alternate continuities. If it wasn't canon, I'll talk about it. Elseworlds, what if? Intercompany continuity is because, let's face it, very few of those count. I'll also be talking about non-canon minis like Superman Birthright, Shazam A New Beginning, Bob Layton's Hercules, and even Heroes Reborn because, let's face it, we're all glad that never stuck. And on a few occasions, I'll even be discussing the Doctor Who Unbound audios. I'll also try and get interviews and Q&As with as many comic creators as I possibly can. Now keep in mind, this does not count full running company lines or eras, so no children comics or the ultimate comics. The All-Stars, maybe. Oh, and the second reason, well... Hey, how's it going? Hey, what are you doing in my room? My room? This is mine at... Wait, Sean Ingle? What are you doing here? Sean, I'm... I'm Robert Willing, and... Wait, you look like Sean Ingle. Ugh, okay, I get it. You're from a world where I'm Sean Ingle and you're me. Man, you... you get visits too? Yeah. You see, folks, my house is set in a unique location of the multiverse where every world intersects, and I get occasional and very random visits from other me's. Tell me about it. Once I met a version of me where I was Guy Gardner. Pre or New 52? Neither. It was the collateral damage one. Yeah, I met him. What an absolute jerk. Oh, holy cow. That, uh, that Guy Gardner was such an ass. So join me this summer as I grant first the multiverse and share different iterations of churches you love, as well as deal with other me. And then, you know, Jake decided to take away the whole Boldarian thing and make a Boldarian storyline. It was just awful. What the hell was he thinking? I'm kidding. See you soon, everyone. Elsewhere in the multiverse, look at all your favorite alternate iterations coming soon to a podcast near you. I'm back now, and I just want to again thank PQ River for joining me this time out, because people, you need to understand, when he and I recorded that, it was just a totally last-minute thing, sort of spur of the moment. I was just kind of sitting around the place and really didn't have a whole lot else to do at that moment, and so just uh, reached out to him over Facebook, said, you know, do you want to, you know, do you want to do this? Do you want to have... Just a little quick uh, shoot-the-shit episode with me. And um, I guess he didn't have anything better to do because, you know, he agreed to it. And the results of which I think you've just heard. So, So that's pretty good. But there are a couple other things that I want to talk about. See, being as it's... 
It's not quite Thanksgiving at the time that all of you are hearing this, but it's actually going to be very close. It feels like now is actually a pretty good time just to kind of look back on things a little bit and, I don't know, take stock, I guess, of where I am. Now, for those of you who don't know, this, for all I know, this actually could be news to some of you, or even a lot of you, hell if I know. I spent most of 2013 unemployed, right? And to just kind of give you a little bit of backstory on that, and if you already are familiar with the story, just forgive me for repeating myself here, but I kind of need to set the context of it all up front. That way you have a better way of appreciating what else I'm going to say here. So anyway, basically what happened was I had an at-home job, right? I Before, I want to say this was, you're probably getting into about around October. In fact, it was definitely October of uh, 2004, right? What happened was I had a job at this uh, computer company and I got a job offer. I guess basically you could call it a dot com, you know, and, uh, you know, got the job. And so started working there and just in short order. And I mean, uh, in just a couple of weeks, that was it. Uh, company such as it was ended up going belly up. And so that was pretty much that. And so, had to do, since I, you know, had just quit my other job back in October, on my birthday, no less, I'd quit that other job back in October to go to work for the dot-com, then of course the dot-com goes belly up, so now I have to find another fucking job. And so, I got this work-from-home job, working for this really just weird guy who lives in New York. The company itself is based in California, and I live in Texas. And yeah, it was a pretty fucking weird experience all around. I mean, I can tell... I mean, I, I guess I shouldn't feel too bad about it, because I can tell, you know, just weird, funny stories about this lunatic, really, for the rest of my life, and so there's always going to be a ready supply of funny stories and strange anecdotes and things like that. But at the end of the day, this really was just a fucking soul-killing job. It really was. And it was the kind of job where... I'm trying to think of the best way to put it. Because I usually don't regard employment... I've never equated employment with exploitation the way that some people are seem, to, seem to be so desperate to do. I mean, to me, it's, it's a job. You work the job, and then that's the end of it, right? And so... Uh, I don't want to go so far as to say exploitation, but it starts it starts small. It always starts small. Some minor little compromise. And let's face the facts, people. I mean, we're all adults here. We all make these tiny little compromises once in a while so that we can have a job. You know, these little principles, I think, that a lot of us carry around with us, we compromise on those things so that we can have a job. Like... Maybe you don't like the tone of voice that your boss is using to address you. But you let it go because, fuck it, you need the job. And maybe you don't necessarily like the exact volume of work that you're getting because you're already busy enough as it is. But fuck it, you need the job, so you don't say anything. You know, things like that. And, and that's kind of where I found myself, right? Just these tiny little compromises. And the thing is... With anything like that, it always has a funny way of snowballing. And what ends up happening is 
what had started off as just one minor little, you know, compromise, well, I can just deal with that because, bug it, I need a job. It's now getting to the point where the boss is asking for things that I can't give him, you know? Uh, I, again, I don't want to get too specific about all of this, but basically, this is something that I think any one of us would have put our foot down about and said, no, I will not do that. And I think, well, I say I think, I know that the law is on my side on this because of just some stuff that's happened in the background here. I know for a fact that I'm in the right, legally, on this. So, anyway, so whatever happened, happened, and he asked for something that I thought was just completely over the line. You know, and when I told him no, I was pretty sure I knew what that was going to cost me. But I don't know. I mean, you get to a point in life where, like I said, we all make little compromises and things in order to keep our jobs. But there comes a point when too much is too much. And you've got to say no. I mean, we have uh, an amendment in the Constitution that outlaws slavery. And I'm sorry, if I had agreed to what this crazy son of a bitch had wanted me to do, basically what we're looking at here now is slavery. All right? I can't do that. And so, anyway, so whatever happened, happened. And I ended up being let go. Right? And as far as the state of Texas is concerned, yes, I was let go. That lunatic can say whatever he wants to the contrary. The law, though, has spoken on this. I was let go involuntarily. It was not my decision to leave the company. It was his. So, fuck you, buddy. Huh? Fuck you. Who won that one? Anyway. So, so there you go. Nevertheless, though, I still spent the majority of 2013 unemployed. Uh, my job came to an end in March, and so I spent the remainder of that year on unemployment, basically, and even started off 2014 that way. And then, as many of you know, I got a job, and I honestly, I think it's probably best I not say where I got a job. So if you happen to know, please feel free to keep it to yourself. But I ended up getting a job, and I got to tell you, you know, I had spent so much time at, the, at, at my old job with my psycho boss it's kind of strange to think that, you know, you hear people sometimes uh, tell stories about, you know, this job that they had, and it took, like, a literal toll on them, like, physically. You know, it took a toll on their health, on their bodies and things. And, uh, you know, you hear stories about that all the time, but, you know, I think there's also this, at least, possibility that you can have a job that takes a toll on you, like, psychologically, you know, and I think that's kind of the situation that I was in. I didn't even really realize it at the time. But that's, you know, that's kind of where I found myself. And I'm almost tempted to compare it to battered wife syndrome in as much as basically there are, I don't know, sort of quirks and traits and habits that people have just really been kicked around too much that they tend to have a little bit of, I don't know, it's just, you know it when you see it. And there's a there's a, a psychological pattern to all of that stuff. You know, it fits into a profile. And more or less, that's where I seem to be. And so I get this new job. And within short order, a lot of really cool things started happening. Not least of which was people, I was successful at it. You know? And 
after being told, and I mean outright told, you know, that I'm stupid and I'm an idiot and I can't do anything right, you know, and all that stuff. And to sign on at a company like this and do an incredibly fucking technical job that I truly don't believe that you can just pick anybody up off the street and have them do it. To be successful at that, and I mean objectively successful, not in that, you know, somebody's giving you, uh, I don't know, some kind of artificial advancement, you know, like some sort of affirmative action or something like that's going on. I mean, on your own merits and on your own strengths, you truly are successful at this. And I don't know, I guess I'd kind of gotten to a point where I guess I hadn't realized how good I was at certain things anymore, you know? That after a while, all you start seeing is the flaws, and that's all you remember. You know, the goofs, the things that weren't done properly, the mistakes. You know, and I mean, guys, like simple fucking human error, right? Like you misspell something on an email or something like that, you know? It happens to the best of us. It's Anyway, so, and that has not been my experience at all at the new company, right? Where... Basically, everyone there, they all want, they all want me to be the best that I can be. You know, they all want me to succeed, and they give me the tools in order to do it. You know, and honestly, going to work most days, it's you know, you're having to, it's like you're tripping over opportunities to get ahead every time you walk through the door, and this is so far away from where I was just a year ago, where. Like I said, I mean, I didn't have a job. There really were no prospects for a job, no matter how hard I tried. There, it, it was like there just wasn't anything out there for me, you know? And no matter how hard I tried or how many hours I spent looking or anything, you know, nothing was panning out. And again, it kind of feeds into this insecurity of, you know, well, maybe you are this really big fuck up, you know, that you, you can't keep a job, you're unemployable, you know? And like I said, I mean, nobody wants to think that about themselves, but people, let's be honest, we all know at least a few people who are too stupid to work any job that is out there in the world. They're, they're just too dumb to do it, you know, and God help me if I was ever one of those, you know, and I was kind of starting to think that that's, that was me, you know, and like I say, you know, I mean, I got this job and all of that stuff and I've really done well at every, you know, basically everything that they've challenged me with. And so I just feel really good about it now. And like I say, I mean, it's, this is so not where I was back in November and, uh, of 2013. And for those of you who don't know, again, this may not be new for some of you, but then again, it might be. I'm kind of superstitious about November as a month, you know, from November the 1st to November the 30th. I'm a little bit superstitious about that. What I've noticed, call me crazy, but what I've noticed is that I've got a strange tendency to lose control over everything during the month of November. If my life is going to get turned upside fucking down, likely as not, it's probably going to happen during the month of November. And, I, and, and people, it, it, it can be anything. Um... Losing family members, losing friends, breaking up with girlfriends, losing jobs, or just, or, or whatever, you know, and as it goes for this shit job that I had, no, technically I did not lose that job in November of 2012, 
but the seeds of it were planted right then. Like I said, I knew what this decision was going to cost me, and ultimately it cost me my job. People, that happened during November of 2012, all right? And it just took several months for all the chickens to come home to roost on that one. And so, you know, here we are. As I record all of this, it's November the 14th of 2014, so we're not even quite to the halfway point yet of this month. But so far, and I may end up being, being, you know, being proven very wrong on this, but so far, it just doesn't really look like there's, all, there's really too much of anything that's on the horizon that's going to kick my ass. Now, to be fair, usually these life-changing things happen without warning. So who's to say? It's just that I usually spend a good amount of time living kind of in fear of what the month of November might bring for me, you know? And, you know, the truth is, it's not always bad, right? I probably shouldn't get too specific about stuff because, I, you know, there are some kind of personal things here, but it's not always a bad thing. Like, I think maybe a good example is I, not by choice, but I ended up uh, severing ties with a friend of mine. And people, this was a friend that I'd had since, like, junior, junior high, right? He and I through no choice of mine and we kind of went our separate ways for it worked out to basically a year back in uh, 2006 there were just things that I was doing that he didn't understand did not approve of and really didn't want to be part of and so he hit the door and it kind of sucks to lose a friend and we pretty much didn't speak to each other for that entire year until November of the following year when I knew for a fact that he needed a friend, just some stuff was going on in his life. And so I reached out to him and, you know, we reconnected. So I lost a friend during the month of November, which sucks. But then I regained that same friend precisely one year later. So like I say, it's not always bad, right? Sometimes it's bad, like losing a friend, but sometimes it's good regaining that friend. You know, so... You know, I don't want to sound like too melodramatic about it whenever I say that, you know, I do kind of live in fear of it. And it's not like I, I'm afraid to get out of bed, but, you know, damn it, man. I mean, you know, as many just fucking negative things have happened during the month of November at this point, you know, fuck you if I, if I feel like I kind of have a right to be a little bit paranoid about this. And I am, kind of. Anyway, so the main real exception, though, to... I guess November negativity is 2011, right? When my girlfriend and I took this uh, trip to, a, to Austin, Texas to go to a con. Now, that's kind of a double whammy right there. Because number one, it was, it was during the month of November. So I'm already taking a pretty big risk right there. But then number two, I'm going to Austin. People, you wouldn't believe half the shit that's happened to me in Austin. I hate Austin, right? Hate it. Nothing positive has ever happened to me when I go to Austin. It's always negative and usually usually like freakishly negative, right? So so then to go to Austin to go to a con in 2011 with my girlfriend, I I really felt like I was taking my life into my own hands. But it was a really positive experience. I had a lot of fun. And nothing really negative happened during November of 2011. November 2012, I just told you about. 
the seeds were planted that ultimately cost me my job. In November of 2012, I found out that unemployment insurance was going to get turned off. Uh, basically, there was some government stuff that was going on at the time, and so my unemployment was going to get turned off. And so the way that it is right now, November 2014, nothing's really yet on the table that looks like it's going to be life-threatening. So who knows? Maybe I'm going to get by this year without having to have some sort of crazy life-changing event. I hope so. But all the same, you know, I look back on everything that's happened during the year of 2014, and it's really hard to not be, you know, grateful for everything that, that that's happened. And I think that in a lot of cases, you know, a lot of times in life, you need to experience bad things so that you can really appreciate it when you've got something good. And I think right now I've got something that's pretty that's that's pretty good. And like I say, I mean, I look back on where I was and how things were going even just a year ago. You know, November of 2013 when like I said I had no job prospects. Unemployment insurance was about to be turned off cuz that government bullshit that was going on. And it just didn't look like there was anything positive coming anytime in the near future, right? And as a matter of fact, I think that maybe the only truly positive thing that happened I think it was probably, like, the only thing that was really positive that happened at that time was moving my uh, show over to the uh, Two True Freaks podcast network, where I remain to this day, and I'm very happy here, right? That, I think, was very likely the only truly positive thing that happened during all of November of 2013. It was that fucking bad, right? And so, I guess what I'm saying is I'm... I'm just, you know, really happy where things are right now with my life, with my job. I'm happy that, you know, you guys are all listening to me and you seem to enjoy the show. And I get feedback from you all the time. And more feedback actually seems to come in, uh, come in each week. And guys, fuck it. I say keep it coming, all right? I love feedback. So, you know, all around, I'm just really happy with where things are right now. And I really hope I'm not jinxing things by recording this before... Uh, November's, you know, actually finished, but it feels like it's actually going to be a pretty safe risk to take, so I don't know. Uh, I guess we'll see. So, but anyway, uh, I guess as far as, uh, you know, the future is concerned and things are going to be coming soon, um, next week I've got, uh, I'm going to be talking about uh, The Punisher Max, numbers one through six. It's a storyline entitled uh, In the Beginning. And so I've got that coming. So, and I think I'm, I've actually got another section in there, recorded back in July, where I just, you know, just fucking ramble and ramble and ramble. So if you enjoy me rambling, uh, you know, get comfortable because you're about to hear more of it. So either way, but thanks to all of you for listening. So I, I just really appreciate it, and I hope you know this year has been good for all of you. So I certainly hope this November is, has been good for all of you as well. So. Otherwise, I think that's about it. So, bye, everybody. I will see you next week to talk about Punisher comics. Okay, so I think that's just about the end of that. Trentus Magnus Punches Reality is a proud member of the Two True Freaks Podcast Network. You can find the home for Trentus Magnus Punches Reality at twotruefreaks.com, which is spelled T W O T R. U-E-F-R-E-A-K-S 
You can also find it on Facebook just by searching for Trentus Magnus Punches Reality. There you can interact with your fellow listeners and also see notifications of new episodes when I put them up. You can email me and my parole officer at trentusmagnus at gmail.com, which is spelled T-R-E-N-T-U-S-M-A-G-N-U-S. Did you know? You can sponsor any episode of this or any other of your favorite Two True Freaks affiliated shows. That's right. Simply click the PayPal link, donate any amount at all, tell us which show you're choosing and what message, if any, you'd like us to read on your behalf, and you will be an official sponsor of that show's very next episode. With your message read in the show's opener, it's that easy, and there's no minimum donation. Be a show sponsor today. If you shop at Amazon.com, please consider using the link at 2TrueFreaks.com to shop there. If you use this link to go to Amazon and then you shop, 2 True Freaks gets a cut of what you buy. It doesn't cost you anything extra, and it really helps the freaks out. You get to shop as usual and help out the 2 True Freaks at the same time. Do you have a podcast of your own? If so, why not record a promo for me to play on my show? It's quick, easy, and can help you spread the word about your show. I'm always looking for more promos to play. Keep it fairly short, and yours could be next. My promos can be found at this show's homepage for those interested. Just look for the promo section. The contents of this podcast are fictitious, hypothetical, and probably completely unnecessary. Any similarity to living persons or real-life events is purely coincidental and void where prohibited by law, some assembly required, batteries not included. Trentus Magnus Punches Reality is a Magnus Media Enterprises Limited production in association with Demonsacor of Milan, Italy. Thank you.